This message by Craig Cabanis, titled Gathering to Commission, is made available to you through Sovereign Grace Ministries. It was recorded during the fifth general session at our Worship God 2011 conference. Craig is the senior pastor of Grace Church in Frisco, Texas. Well, uh, open your Bibles to 1 Peter 2. It is a, really is a joy. Thanks, Bob, for inviting me um, to be at the conference, inviting me back. It's an honor to be invited to speak anywhere. Uh, it's an amazing honor to be invited back. So thank you for that. And I look forward to this conference every time it's held because it's, it's really, this is not an overstatement, it's a thrill for me to be among you um, because you are some of my favorite people in the church. And I, I wholeheartedly agree with what Bob talked about yesterday when he identified the Corinthian error, uh, wherein they elevated a certain gift above others. And I wouldn't want to elevate a certain gift above others for all gifts exercised for the glory of God are uh, equally valuable and, and carry worth because of the object uh, Christ, the object of their exercise. But having said that, I do want to say that I believe your gifts... While all gifts are are equal before the Lord, differing gifts have differing uh, strategies in their usage in the body of Christ. And your gifts are strategic because they are particularly used to facilitate the corporate worship of God. And uh, so as a pastor who doesn't know, I don't know most of you, but as a pastor, I I just want to communicate on behalf of the churches and the pastors that we appreciate you and we are grateful for you. You are the ones who uh, oftentimes the first ones in the building on Sundays and the last ones out of the building on Sundays. You, you tech folks, uh, you are laboring in secret and serving the Lord. So we show up and have these wonderful experiences of God as we sing and pray and preach and hear God's Word read, but someone's behind the scenes. Uh, we're all caught up in the music and the, and the person of God that we're singing to, but someone's running sound and concerned about all the technical stuff going on here. And same for you musicians and you singers, you vocalists. And those of you who lead in the worship and in secret are praying and preparing and coming and leading even when you don't feel like it's all together or you're all together, you're faithful to serve. And so as one who benefits week in and week out by your service, I just want to communicate uh, as someone who's not a singer, an instrumentalist or a tech person, I just want to communicate uh, my profound gratitude to you for all that you do. We are so grateful for you and um, so grateful for all that you do. Well, First Peter 2 is where we're going to be. I'm really going to concentrate primarily on one verse today, um, but I want to look at the, uh, at the context. So let's begin reading in verse 4 of First Peter 2. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men... But in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, 
to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. And here's our verse of focus. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's pray. God, we submit ourselves before your holy word today. God, we are not here to examine you, but to be examined by you and to be instructed by you and to be, God, we pray, changed by you. So, Spirit of God, would you come now and speak through your living word? God, would you give us alertness where our bodies are tired? Would you give us a a mental grasp of this scripture where our minds are fatigued? And Lord, would you send us out from this place full of your spirit and changed by you that we may go to the various locales where we live and honor and serve you, stewarding what we've been entrusted of you in this conference. So speak to us, Lord. I pray that you'd fill me with your spirit now and enable me to communicate truthfully your word to this gathered assembly. And may we be hearers and doers for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. In uh, the early 1990s, uh, I served as a youth pastor in the Sovereign Grace Church in uh, Pasadena, California, which is in Southern California. And uh, yes, yep, and uh, a lot of enthusiasm for Southern California, and uh, yes, and one of my responsibilities there was I served for a year as a chaplain at a public high school for their football team. In Southern California, at a public high school, I served as a chaplain for the varsity football team. Now, I know you're thinking, that not that illegal? Well, yeah, yeah, it's illegal, but uh, I'm just a risk-loving kind of a guy that was willing, for the sake of mission, to endure the danger of uh, being a chaplain for a high school football team. Now, truth be told, they weren't very good, 
And so not even an atheist would complain about a chaplain uh, at that point. And my job description was this, that before the game began, I would join the team in the locker room and they would ask me to pray. And uh, then everybody, you know, everybody was very reverential as I prayed. And then afterwards, everybody would run out onto the field. So they weren't good. And so they were hoping for anything. Let's just bring a guy in here to pray, whatever it takes. And so I, it was a great opportunity. And uh, they weren't good. And they got no better as I prayed. So it was a one-year gig. I was not invited back. And uh, I don't know. I'm sure the next year they got like a word of faith guy in there that could name and claim some victories or something. But uh But the Calvinist who was praying, oh, God, sanctify us in our losses and our sufferings. uh, That's not really the guy you want praying before the game. So, God, you have ordained our defeat once again. And so may we respond for your glory. They just, you know, that's not good. So anyway. So I would pray, and that's the whole thing. And then I would just stand on the sidelines. And so I would just kind of stand there as they were all playing. But uh, no one really paid me any attention. But one guy, I'll never forget this guy. He was a running back. And here's what he would do. Uh, You know, the the offense would be on the field, usually, you know, four downs and they're out. And uh, so then he would return over to the sidelines. And I would just stand there. But he would regularly, throughout the game, while the defense is on the field, he would come over to me. And he never stood still. I don't know if it was adrenaline. But he would just bounce. And he'd come up to me and say, hey, hey, quick prayer. Can you pray for me? Can you pray for me? I'm about to go back in. Can you pray for me? And... So I thought, okay, so I'd put my hand on his shoulder pad and I'd pray for the guy. I just, and throughout the game, he would do that. He would come and would you pray for me? Would you pray for me? And then he would run back in and he was, I I was like a good luck charm or something for the guy. And uh, I didn't correct his theology or whatever. I just, just prayed for him. It's an opportunity to pray. And so he would run back on the field and then back and throughout the game, I'm, I'm just like an intercessor for one halfback is my job. And. And um, it was kind of strange. I mean, it sounds kind of funny, doesn't it? A guy, he comes out, he comes to the sidelines when everyone's resting, the offense is resting, he gets prayer and he goes back in. It's almost a little superstitious just that he would come for prayer and run back in. And It's kind of sounds strange, but I think it reflects what some of our attitudes are to the Sunday, Sunday gathering. That, that the real mission is out there. And real life is out there, and so we take a break and we come in here. And he wanted to be prayed for and blessed and, and so that he could go back into the real game of life and succeed. And sometimes that's how we view it as well. We come and we want to be blessed and we want to be fed and we want to be filled because we leak all week long. And then we go back and we live the real life that we were called to live out there. And we even escape from being around unbelievers so that we can gather with believers and then we can be strengthened so that we can go back out. We take a break so that when we, then we can go back to the, the real life, the real mission that is before us. And, and while that's not a completely false understanding of the gathering, it is an imbalanced understanding of the Sunday gathering. This morning I want to speak about the intersection of the gathering and mission. The intersection of the Sunday morning gathering and mission. You see, the gathering is not an escape from mission. The gathering is actually part of our mission. 
The gathering is not a break from mission. It's not, well, it's not the intermission from mission so that we can gather together with the church. But actually, we gather in part for mission and then we scatter for mission. See, our mission to be sure is go and tell. But let's not forget that our mission as well is come and see. It's go and tell, but it's come and see as well. And when we gather, the gathering of the believers, we must remember that we are also gathering prayerfully, hopefully, with outsiders. That the unchurched and the dechurched and the nominal, nominal believer and the unregenerate church kid and the just rank unbeliever, well, they find their way into our gatherings as well. They are there as well. And you see, our gathering is intended to be missionally potent because as we gather, God, the work of God, the Word of God, the presence of God, God is audibly and visibly present through His gospel and through the fruit of His gospel in His people. God is present when we gather, and it would be fair to say that God is uniquely present when we gather so that those who are listening and watching, the onlookers in our midst, are able to grasp something of God in a way that they see nowhere else. Nowhere else. God's presence and His work is uniquely on display when His church gathers to sing His praises and to hear His Word. God is present in our gathering. He's present as Bob taught so clearly yesterday. He's present to edify. But you know what? He's also present to restore He's present to reconcile the unbeliever to himself. He's present to open blind eyes. He's present to soften the hard heart. He's present to welcome the prodigal back home. He's present to give life to the soul that is dead. He's present to make his enemies his friend. He's present to save in the gathering. Listen, if we just asked how many of us in the room were saved, you know, merely never heard the gospel and an individual came to you and shared the gospel and you were converted, that's glorious. And many were saved that way. But I bet most of us had some exposure to a gathering of believers worshiping and hearing the gospel preached. If we weren't saved in a gathering, regenerated in a gathering, at least we were in a gathering at some point, a worship service, a meeting, where we heard the gospel and that was part of the process that led us to conversion. Most all of us had some exposure. We were that outsider at some meeting somewhere. Gather for mission. We gather to commission as well. I'm going to talk about that as well because that was the title of the message that Bob asked me to give. So I want to say some things about that as well. But I also want to talk about this gathering. Bob, I will say something about what you titled this seminar, this message rather. I'll I'll do that, but in a minute. But I also want to... (laughs) Gathering for commission, gathering for mission, 
just not gathering for omission, okay? We won't do that, but uh, commission and mission we will do. The passage we're looking at in verse 9, I want to look at two things that I think help us understand something about our gathering and our mission. First of all, I want to briefly look, and this isn't a rabbit trail, it may feel like it, but I, I want to look at... Uh, at, at who it is that gathers, who we are as we gather before God. And then I want to look secondly at what we do as we gather. First of all, who we are as we gather before God. Look at verse 9. Look what Peter says. You are a chosen race. He's speaking about the church and he's using language that's descriptive of the old covenant people of God, the ch- a chosen race. But he's applying it here to Christian believers, the church. You are a chosen race. At its core, the church is the people that are chosen by God. When the church gathers, we gather in awe saying, God picked us. It's unbelievable that God saved us by the death and resurrection of His Son, but he, he, he chose us. He set His love on us before time. He opened our eyes to see Him. And He opened our hearts to believe. And He's chosen Jew and Gentile alike. He's chosen people from all races. Every tribe, every tongue, every language, every nation. He's chosen all kinds of people and made us into one race the people of God in Jesus Christ. And so even as we gather, it, it, is a, it is a demonstration of the work of God that people from different ethnicities and different backgrounds, different socioeconomic categories, different ages, male and female, all kinds of people gather as one race, one people, a chosen race in Jesus Christ. It makes a powerful statement that people who would never be together were it left up to them, would never choose to be together, are together in Christ, chosen by Him. Secondly, he says you are a royal priesthood. A royal priesthood. It's it's hard for us to, to really grasp the shock value of that statement. Everybody is a priest, is what he's saying. Everyone is a priest, not just an Israelite, not just an Israelite male, not just an Israelite male with the appropriate lineage, but everyone in Christ, a priest who gathers Gentiles. Well, what does a priest do? What, what is a priest is someone who is set apart. The priests were set apart from the people. The, the priest had special access to God in a sense. The, the priest were the one who offered sacrifices. And here Peter is saying that those who are in Christ are a all priest, a priesthood, a royal priesthood. He's touched on this earlier in verse four. As you come to him, listen to that. As you come to him, that, that has the overtones of corporate worship to it. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house 
to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. I think the, the sort of the undercurrent of this language that we're reading, it's talking about the corporate people of God, but there's corporate worship language in here, the language of priesthood, the, the, the description of as you come to him. If it's not right up front that, a, that the corporate gathering's in view, it's not far behind in the language of uh, chosen race and royal priesthood says that you are priests and you are offering not animal sacrifices because Christ has died once for all, but you are offering spiritual sacrifices. What is the spiritual sacrifice that the people of God offer when they gather? Well, I think it's probably the same thing that the author of Hebrews talks about. In Hebrews 13, verse 15, this is what the author writes. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. The priesthood of the people of God that offer a sacrifice of praise from lips that acknowledge Jesus Christ. So we are all priests with direct access to God the Father because of the sacrifice of the Son. And we are a royal priesthood in service of the King. Actually, a kingdom of priests, the Old Testament says, in service of the King. So who are we going to gather? We are a chosen people of all races. We're coming to bring a sacrifice of praise as the royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. A holy nation. Now we're going to read some verses in a moment in the Old Testament where the word nations plural is used. And, and we can sort of get confused about that because we think in our terms nation is you know, like a nation state with geographic borders. That's what we think of as nation. But in these kinds of, uh, this kind of language in the scriptures talking about people. A holy na- a nation is, is not just geographic borders, it's a people. And we use that the same way. Maybe an illustration would help. We use nation to refer not to geography or a country or people who, you know, share in a common government or something, but, but people that are a people. If you are a Philadelphia Eagles fan, which I'm not, um, but people that are Eagles fans refer to themselves as part of what? Eagles nation. They say we're part of Eagles nation. That doesn't mean you live in Philadelphia. It means you share something with others. It means you're ignorant, obnoxious, about to get in a fist fight. That's Eagles nation. That's what it means. It doesn't mean you live in Philadelphia. It means you share. Uh, it, it, it means you, that you uh, share the depraved characteristics of your fellow fans. But it's a people. The point is, Eagles Nation is a people. And so we use nation in that same way. And in the Bible, it's not talking about the nation of the United States. The holy nation is the people of God. This is the same language that Exodus 19 uses of Israel. Holy means separate or set apart. The church is the people from every tribe, language, people and nation set apart to Christ, separated to him. And then the last phrase here sort of summarizes them all. A people for his own possession. That we are gods. And we often say that individually, that I am gods. God possesses me. But the general thrust of Scripture is that we are gods because we are part of God's people. Yes, you're saved individually. 
But our identification in Scripture is so frequently corporate that we are part of the people of God, possessed by God, the holy people set apart for Him, the priests offering sacrifices of praise, the chosen race regardless of our background, chosen in Christ. And so our understanding of who we are must inform our gathering. We're not showing up for a performance We're not showing up to watch something. We're not attending a program. We're not coming to a club of some sort. We are God's people summoned by God to gather before God in Jesus Christ to bring Him worship, to hear from Him, to commune with Him, to experience Him, to honor Him, to set aside time on His day, the Lord's day, as His people coming before Him. We're not spectators at an event. We're the corporate people of God that He chose, the priests offering Him worship, those set apart to Him. That's who we are. And in the midst of that come people that don't know Him. And they're exposed to Him through His people. That's who we are. Now the text goes on to also to say, what do we do? Based on who we are, what do we do? Well, let's read it. Verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. We are called, what we do is we are called to proclaim the excellencies of the God who saved us, who called us out of darkness and into His light. Now, what does this mean, proclaim His excellencies? Proclaim the excellencies of the God who saved us. Does it mean to evangelize? That's a good impulse. That's a very good impulse because while corporate worship is in view in this passage, as we read on, there's this undercurrent of mission and evangelism that we find in these chapters of First Peter. And they come on the heels of this statement about the people of God. So if we look at the context, if we read further and look at the context... And we wonder if this proclaim has to do with evangelism. That's an understandable thought and impulse. Look, look where he goes after this. Verse 10, he says, once you were a people, not a people, now you're God's people. Look what he says in verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Listen, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So what's he saying? The gathered people of God scatter ultimately and to, or to keep their conduct, that is their lifestyle, among the Gentiles, that's unbelievers, keep it honorable so that they will see your life, they may see your good deeds, and they'll glorify God on the day of visitation. Some discussion about what the day of visitation means, but it certainly may mean his return. That, that unbelievers would see the people of God, they would see you in your life, and they would turn and believe as they hear the gospel, and they too would welcome God on the day of visitation. So there is this sense where there is a scattered witness. This is gathering to commission. We come together as the people of God, but then it follows immediately saying, as you live your life among those in the world, 
Be a witness for Christ. Be salt and light. We come together and we behold God. We come together and we hear the word. We come together and we rehearse the gospel. We come together and we are edified as believers. And we scatter and live among the Gentiles in the good of the gospel that we celebrate every Sunday. There is this sending out. There is this commissioning that takes place. Look in verse uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. A believing wife can, by her conduct, be an example, a testimony to an unbelieving husband that here in the family there's a scattering for witness into the family that is in view here. That to, to be a representative of Christ, to be as an individual or as a family or as a small group to reflect the person and work of Christ. And here, speaking of in the home. Or look at 3.15. But in your hearts, honor Christ as the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So here is... The image, the the people of God or ultimately living our lives uh, in the culture, living our lives in the world. And the scripture anticipates that we would have opportunities where someone would ask us about the reason for our hope, ask us about our faith. And there we're called to give an answer gently and respectfully, but to preach the gospel and to give a clear witness for Christ. The people that come together and rehearse the gospel and celebrate the gospel and worship the Savior of the gospel and build one another up, then are, are out in the culture and having opportunities to be able to give testimony to that Savior that we gather to worship on Sundays. So the impulse that proclaim must have something to do with evangelism is true in the context because in this letter, Peter is concerned with the suffering people of God being a witness to the world. So this idea of mission is very clearly embedded in this letter. Back to the phrase, that's gathering to commission. So we gather and then we scatter with the gospel. But back to the phrase that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I don't think in that verse individual evangelism is in view. And here's why. First of all is the context. It's the chosen race, the royal priesthood, the holy nation, the people for his possession who called us out of darkness into light. Uh, All of this that you may proclaim, this is all corporate language. This is the people of God that are in view here. So the context is corporate, that we together may proclaim the excellencies. And secondly, this word proclaim is an interesting word. This word is not the same word that's used about individually preaching the gospel. So like in one chapter 1, verse 25, at the end it says, this word is the good news that was preached to you. That word preached is different than this word proclaim. As a matter of fact, this word proclaim is only used once in all of the New Testament. It's a Greek word that's only used once in the New Testament. Now, it's found in numbers of times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So Peter has borrowed a word out of the Greek translation of the Old Testament 
and, and given this proclaim the excellencies. Proclaim. The, la- the word means to declare. It means to tell. It means to count. And it's a word that shows up in the Psalms concerning worship. For instance, Psalm 79. But we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever from generation to generation. We will recount your praise. That's the word. We will recount. Proclaim the excellencies is the same as recounting his praise. Or in Psalm 107, verses 21 and 22. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, and let them offer sacrifices of thanksgivings, thanksgiving, and here's the word, and tell of his deeds in songs of joy. Tell of his deeds in singing. The word is used there. The word that appears in the Psalms and never appears anywhere else in the New Testament is a word that's frequently used for the people of God to tell, in this case, to sing, to recount, to declare, to proclaim His excellencies. So Peter is saying that you as the people of God, you are, you are to gather and you proclaim, you declare, you recount all that God has done. And specifically, we declare that He has called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. We proclaim the salvation of God through our worship, through our prayers, through our scripture readings, through the preaching, through our singing, through our meditation. And so as we gather, we declare his praises and we proclaim them to him. And as Bob taught yesterday, we proclaim his excellencies to one another. But as guests are in our midst... We proclaim and declare and sing and tell of the excellencies of our God who has saved us from darkness in their earshot as well. So that they may hear this corporate celebration and worship of our great God that they may look on and see a demonstration of the fruit of the gospel saving people, changing their lives so that they gather with His people to declare His praises. We declare His excellencies to Him, to one another, and to those who don't know. I don't know about you, but I often divide the categories of praise and evangelism. Very clearly, I divide those. One is talking to God about Him and celebrating Him, and evangelism is talking to a person about God. But I'm not sure the Scripture always makes that exact Division as clear as we do. In other words, it is possible to praise God and as we extol and honor and praise Him, God uses that to draw others into His praise as well. It's possible to praise and see someone drawn in to the one praised. This is something that we experience in our regular lives. That is, it's not uncommon that we praise something or someone and others are caught up in that. I could use a crass example. Um, I mentioned California. We moved from California to Texas, uh, moved from San Diego to Dallas about six years ago. And people were like, well, how can you make that move? How can you go from San Diego? Are you kidding me? To Dallas. You've never been to Texas if you ask that question. That's all I could say. But, but, 
the thing I miss about California, I mean, I, the weather I got over. I mean, I, after a little while, I got over living in perfection in terms of weather and lived like everyone else. But the thing I couldn't get over was in Texas, there was no In-N-Out burger. And uh, so, yeah, if... if <laughs> So that was very difficult, and I kind of went through withdrawals. I had the shakes for a few months, but... Uh, so what happened was, on May 11th, 2011, the first In-N-Out Burger in Texas opened, and uh, I don't believe people are applauding for this in a sermon. This seems wrong, but... Uh, and uh, so, and the first one in all of Texas was 15 minutes from my house. So this is just a glory... This is God's favor and love. You, you obey me and move to Texas and I will bless you. And so uh, there will be a great church there and all that. But the burgers are coming your way. And uh, so it was my son's birthday, 16th birthday. He's here with me. And so we stood three hours in the rain the day they opened to get in. And I've never been in anything like it. You came in, you had to wait three hours, three and a half hours before we had food. And it's, it was more excited. People in that restaurant, in In-N-Out Burger, if you haven't had it, it's just a fast food burger, but it's, it's life-changing. And so <laughs> in that restaurant, there was so much joy. People had been waiting three and a half hours, and they would call a name, number 15, and everyone would applaud for this guy as he went up and got his burger. I mean, there was more joy in In-N-Out Burger than most gatherings of the church I've been in. And... It was kind of, well, it was kind of idol worship, to tell you the truth. People were loving this burger, and it was just kind of a worship experience for folks, nonetheless. But what happened was, is I really talked it up to people. In and out's coming, in and out's coming. And I was telling about the experience and how wonderful it was and how great that, well, I'm getting hungry thinking about it, but how much the food was, you'll just love this. You never tasted any combination of grease and fat quite like this. And so people that I knew had never been were getting drawn in. I had a great pastoral moment. The night before they opened, I had a young man in our church contact me. I've never been to In-N-Out Burger. What do I order when I go tomorrow? And I was just able to disciple him, take him under my wing, (laughs) care for him, help him. And so I was praising in and out, we were talking about how great it was. And then the moment where I actually could instruct him personally and sort of draw him in and tell him how he could become a convert like I was, and I had that moment. But what I noticed was just talking about something I enjoyed so much, something as meaningless, seriously, as a double cheeseburger, something that meaningless Others were listening and drawn in. There were people in line. I haven't been here before. What's this really like? I mean, there was those who knew and experienced, talked and celebrated and anticipated, and those who were ignorant and those who were outside and uninitiated were drawn in and showed up for three and a half hours in the rain, the locals who know nothing about it, because of the personal uh, description now, if that happens for something as meaningless as fast food, is it not true that as we celebrate the God of the universe, that those who watch and listen can be drawn into this? Now, this is what the Scripture teaches. I want to look at two passages right now where this is very clear. The praise of God is, is vertical, but there's also these horizontal invitations to those who don't know God to, set, to enter in. And to know the God that we're worshiping, listen to Psalm 96. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. That's not just Israel. That's the Gentiles. Sing to the Lord. Bless His name. Tell of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory 
among the nations. His marvelous works among all peoples. This is the praise of God, the celebration of God among the world. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. That's the nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. All the nations, all the peoples, we're singing a new song. You come into His courts and you bring an offering as well. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. Nations are the people. We think go to the nations. That means leave the United States. If you're not in Israel, you're in the, if you're not a Jew, you're the nations. We are the nations. Look at Psalm 105. I love this. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Now listen to this. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Where does that happen? It's among the peoples. That the peoples are somehow to be exposed. The nations, the Gentiles, are exposed not just to a verbal one-on-one testimony, though that is glorious, and we're all called to individual evangelism. But there is not only the scattering and going mission, there is come and see the God we're singing to. Come and hear the good news that we're proclaiming. Come and see not just me, the people of God, reconciled to one another, joined to one another, celebrating our God. You come and see this. You come and hear this. You come and hear this message. Tim Keller, who's a Presbyterian pastor in New York City, wrote this about the passage we read this morning, verse 9. He said this, Israel was called to make God known to the unbelieving nations by singing His praises. The temple was to be the center of a world-winning worship. The people of God not only worship before the Lord, but also before the nations. God is to be praised before all nations. And as He is praised by His people, the nations are summoned and called to join in song. Listen to this. This pattern does not essentially change in the New Testament where Peter tells a Gentile church to declare the praises. That's proclaim the excellencies, a different translation. Declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness. The term cannot merely refer to preaching, but must also refer to the gathered worship. The proclaim his excellencies, the declare his praises, is a reference to our gathered worship, which includes the verbal proclamation of the preached gospel and also includes the sung praises of that same gospel and that same Savior. In our gathered worship, we declare the excellencies. He's called us from darkness into light. That is a compelling testimony for folks who don't know what we experience, don't know what it is to have a clean conscience, don't know what it is to have their sins forgiven, don't know what it is to be attached to the people of God. They're isolated, they're alone, they're in darkness, they don't know. But as they're exposed to His people, there is, there is a witness that is unlike any other. As they hear the gospel and as they hear the singing, as they encounter the people of God, Verse 10 says, once you were not a people, 
But now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. And we come and we sing of that mercy. We pray of that mercy. We recite creeds, if your church does that, that declare the grace and mercy of God. We hear testimony of people's lives changed by mercy. And week in and week out, we hear the gospel heralded as the good news of mercy. But it's also our singing and our celebration and our worship. Ed Clowney, the late Ed Clowney, who was um, president of Westminster Seminary for uh, for, uh, his ministry, he called this doxological evangelism. Doxa is the glory of God, that as we sing and worship the glory of God, that the good news is heralded, doxological evangelism. I heard someone call it missional praise. That there is worship that the nations can hear and see as they are with us. That they can see that we once were dead and alone and isolated and judged, but now we have received the mercy of God, and so can they. We gather for God. We gather to build up the body of Christ And we also gather to declare his praises before guests who may be in darkness. This is why it matters what we sing. It matters primarily because we're singing to God and so truth before God and our worship. What we sing and what we say, those are holy matters. So what we sing and say to God must be true of God. So it matters what we sing to God. It matters what we sing in encouraging one another in our faith. But it matters what we sing to those who may not know because this is gospel witness to them. Not only that, it matters how we sing. It matters how we sing. If we are those who have been taken out of darkness and brought into his life, his light, that should show up in the way we participate. Can I be real practical? That should... That should be demonstrated on, in areas like when we arrive for the gathered worship, how we arrive, how we participate. We're, we're declaring to God and to one another, but to the nations, people who are watching, we're declaring this God is worthy, and I'm showing up like he's worthy. This God is glorious and His mercy has changed my heart. And so I'm responding as one who's been touched by mercy. How we sing. Listen, if an unbeliever comes into our midst and isn't convinced, the Spirit doesn't regenerate them, they're not convinced, may this at least be their testimony. You know, I went to that meeting and I'm not sure I really believe in Jesus, but they do. But they do. I'm not sure what the big deal about the cross is, but it's a big deal to them. I don't know if there's, I don't know about the resurrection. I don't know what difference, I don't know what power there is in the resurrection, but they do. That there would be a testimony by how we hear and how we participate, and how we serve, that the grace of God has made a difference in our lives. It's a witness. 
No, the session was called Gathering to Commission, and that is true, that we gather and we soak in the gospel and we scatter and we represent the Savior and His gospel. We, we do gather for a commissioning to be sent, and that's about to happen. We're about to all leave here in a moment. In the grace of God and in the power of the gospel and filled by His Spirit, But I want to offer another idea. We not only gather for commission, but we're commissioned to gather. We're commissioned to gather for God primarily, secondarily to edify one another. But thirdly, because it's not a break from mission. Mission is going on on the Lord's day. The gospel is moving forth. God is working so that those in the darkness are coming into the light. Those who are deaf are beginning to hear. Those who are blind are having their eyes opened. I'm not minimizing the go and tell. Actually, I need a lot more of that in my life, and my my guess is we all do. I am not minimizing the mission out there. We are called to live in the world and to represent Christ. We need more of that, not less of that. But what I'm appealing for this morning is not that we balance that. I don't want less mission. I I want more mission. I just want go into all the world to be balanced with come and see. Verse 4, as you come to Him, that as we come, that others would come with us, that there would be a rhythm to our life of mission, that we gather in the gospel and then we scatter with the gospel, that we gather and go and then gather and then go and that gather and then go. And while there are aspects of our gathering that certainly are strange, strengthening and empowering for our going. It's not the pause button of mission. It is all, all of life is to live for the glory of God, proclaiming the gospel. The rhythm of mission is gather and go. It is come and see and go and tell. And there is a witness, a power of witness in our gathered worship before God that I believe is far more persuasive than any of us realize. I'm not talking about like old school uh, seeker service. I'm not talking about muting our worship. I'm not talking about uh, editing our language. I'm talking about if it's in here, letting it go in our worship, making it intelligible as Bob talked about, explaining what might be misunderstood to folks who are gathered, but trusting that there's power in the truth of Scripture expressed through the life change of His people, the sacrifice of praise from our lips, the declaration in song and testimony and preaching that, to an, that God uses to save the outsider. When you gather tomorrow, isn't that exciting? We get to go back and gather with our local churches tomorrow. Is that not wonderful? I love this, but aren't you eager to go back and be with your church? I want you to think about this, if you would, when you gather tomorrow. I mean, please think about everything. I mean, please think about beholding our God, as we talked about the first night. Please think about rehearsing the gospel May we think about hearing the word of God declared to us as the BD taught us so well. May we think about going to edify others. 
But may we think about this tomorrow as well, that our gospel witness is amplified when the people of God gather in the presence of God to proclaim the excellencies of God. Our gospel witness is amplified. And the amp is cranked up to 11. It is amplified to use something that will relate to the guitarist or something, just just connecting with the culture here. But uh, our gospel witness is amplified when the people of God gather in the presence of God to proclaim the excellencies of God. So may, may we expect, may we expect God to do something great. We should expect God to restore wanderers, to awaken the nominal, to save the lost when the gospel is preached and when the person of Christ is celebrated in song, prayer, scripture reading, communion, baptism, spiritual gifts, fellowship. It's all witness because it all reflects the work of Christ. Listen, if you have a leadership role in crafting the agenda of corporate worship in your gathering, ensure that the gospel is on display and that it is clear. The gospel is everything to us. And we also want the gospel to become everything to those for whom it is not currently. Make things intelligible. Explain the unfamiliar. I had a point about that, but I'm about done. And Bob said it tremendously yesterday. It may take a while. That's the other thing I've noticed is it takes sometimes repeated exposure to gospel-centered gatherings before God really awakens someone. I was recently talking to someone that's just been attending our church as an unbeliever. And I was meeting this person thinking they were a believer. And as they began to talk, I was thinking, whoa, actually, I think you've been regenerated as he was describing what was happening to him. But here's basically what he was saying to me was that I've been coming and listening and listening and watching and hearing and, and everything that's going on. And I'm starting to have new thoughts about God. I'm starting to believe in Jesus. It's starting to make sense to me. And here's what it was like. It was like a dimmer switch was just the light was coming on and on. And then sometime mysteriously in a moment, God gave him new life and his eyes were open. But it was a, it was a brightening. It wasn't, uh, in terms of his regeneration, it was darkness to light. But in terms of his comprehension, it was a dimmer switch coming on. Repeated exposures make a difference. So let's expect God to do this as we worship him and as we have a meeting that is a believer's meeting, but is aware of those who are not believers. And as well, this, this says something to all of us about inviting folks to participate, I think, as well. I'm not here putting the attractional over the missional, if those terms mean something to you. I, you know, I'm not here saying gather instead of go. I, I'm simply saying the power of God is on display when the people of God gather. May it not be a secret. May it not be a secret that God is among those people. I mean, this is 1 Corinthians 14, that an outsider, Paul assumes that an outsider could come in. And so enough already with the uninterpreted tongue, speak in an intelligible way, he says. Everyone prophesies. People will come in and say, my heart is laid bare. Surely God is in this place. Do we believe God is in this place? Yes, we believe God is in this place. Let's not keep it hidden. Let's invite people to come and to be exposed to the people of God celebrating the gospel, celebrating our Savior, that the nations may come and listen in and watch and join us 
in the worship of God. Now, to say come and see, we must go and tell. They're both. We've got to go. We've got to know people. We've got to reach out to people. We've got to befriend people so that we can say come and see. But it's go and tell and it's come and see. For people say, well, inviting people to church, that's not really evangelism. As as if that's a bad thing. Oh, excuse me. I wouldn't want to do that, you know. (laughs) I was a bit sarcastic. But, um, well, inviting people to church is not evangelism. Okay, it's not the ultimate to invite them to a gathering of the church, but it's significant for them to come in and hear the gospel proclaimed and encounter the people of God and hear the praises of God sung. That's significant. I, I think God wants that. It's not to be disdained or despised or that's second rate. It's an attempt to expose people to the gospel and the life of God in his people. So may we be those who scatter in mission. We're about to scatter. May we scatter to be salt and light. May we scatter to be those whose conduct among the Gentiles is honorable so that when they speak of us as evildoers, they may see our good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. Verse 11. May we be those people in an ever increasing way and without minimizing that at all. May we also be those people who are saying, come and see. God is doing something. God is alive. God is changing lives. God is true. The gospel is real. Come hear about it. Come hear this good news announced and come see this truth celebrated. Because our gospel witness is amplified when the people of God gather in the presence of God to proclaim the excellencies of God. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that we wouldn't pit one approach to mission above another. We just pray we would have your heart. That we would love the lost. That our heart would be broken for those in darkness who've yet to be brought into the light. That our heart would be broken for those under judgment who've yet to experience mercy. That we would carry your heart for the nations starting with the very locale that we live and the people that we are in the midst of. God, we pray that our churches would be beacons of light, that we would be, we know the people of God are a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. We pray our local churches, every local church represented in this room, and that must be many, we pray that every church represented here would be a city set on a hill, that your light would shine as we scatter and proclaim the gospel, and as we gather and proclaim the gospel. And God, we pray that we would sing a new song and that we would invite those in who don't know you, that they would meet you. God, I pray that our gatherings, I pray that our gatherings would be places where we increasingly behold you, when we increasingly worship and adore you, where we increasingly learn of you and are built up in you, and where we increasingly are seeing in the gathering those that don't know you coming to know you. Oh, God, do that. We know you've done it for us, and we ask you to do it for those we love and those we care about. Oh, God, may your praises sound forth, and as they do, may new life go with them as those that don't know you meet you. Thank you that that was our experience. 
Thank you for drawing us in. Thank you for the witness we saw corporately among the people of God, imperfect as they are. We thank you for that. May it increase in our day and in our locales. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message by Craig Cabanis, which was given at our Worship God 2011 conference and has been made available to you through Sovereign Grace Ministries. Sovereign Grace is primarily devoted to planting and caring for churches. We also hold conferences, train leaders, and publish books, music, and audio and video messages. For more information, visit www.sovereigngraceministries.org or call us at 301-330-7400.